This is the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, and we don't seek glory from people either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you, as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardships, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Amen. Thank you, Jennifer. Good morning, church family. How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, I see that the windows are open and the sunshine is coming out a little bit. That's very encouraging. However, I must warn you, the weather app says that next Sunday it's going to be 85 degrees here in Seattle. So we're going to need some volunteers to show up at like 6 in the morning and set the fans out. We're going to need some other volunteers to show up and set out the like uh, music festival style fans and misters. Uh, Pastor John is on vacation right now, so we're just going to buy them and uh, ask for forgiveness later. Uh, Maybe he's listening to this live stream. I'm going to check my text here. Um, Yeah, also just a fair warning too. Some people might actually wear shorts to church and some of our more uh, melanin challenged among us, like just be careful, okay? Some of your thighs have not seen the sunlight in quite a while, so just... Hey, we are in the uh, letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going through these amazing letters written by Paul and Silas and Timothy to this little church in the city of Thessalonica. And this teaching today kind of builds off of what Pastor Steve taught last week. Uh, Last week, talking about how these guys lived among the church and how we follow the examples of those who've gone before us. And today, we're going to talk about specifically kind of a one very specific thing that Paul and the these men want the, the church to know, which is we live to please God, not humans. So that's what we're going to be unpacking and looking at today, pleasing God, not humans. And I just invite you right now uh, to join with me in a word of prayer as we ask God to help us to meet with him today. So let's pray. Lord, I just pray that each one of us would have a very open heart, a soft heart, a receptive mind to the things that you want to teach us today. God, I always pray for myself that you would guard and and guide my words, that the things I say and the things I teach would be true according to your word and would be useful and profitable for each one of us. And so, Lord, I ask and I pray that this time we have in your word, um, 
God, we, we want to see your love and your approval for us more than anything else. And so let that be true as a result of our time here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So doing some different projects, some spring cleaning things on the house. So over the weekend, I got on Yelp. I was looking for a recommendation for a company. If you're not familiar with Yelp, Yelp is a website where people go to say one of two things about businesses. This is the best business I've ever experienced in my entire life. You know, Jesus himself was running this company. You all should go. Or this is the worst company I've ever experienced in my entire life. They all should probably be, you know, fired from their jobs and the business just burned to the ground. It is unbelievable. I used to follow an account uh, on Twitter just called Don't Read the Comments. And the only thing that this account would post is, hey, reminder, don't read the comments. Just don't read the comments on the internet. Well, I read the comments on Yelp. I, I failed. I failed my prime directive. I, I read the comments. And you get these, like, super positive comments. You get these super negative comments. My personal favorite thing, though, that happens on Yelp is when the owner of the business gets on it to defend themselves against the negative comments, and it turns into kind of a, you know, like a spitfire spitting match there. It's just awful. It's just peak dumpster fire internet. So I'm on Yelp, and I'm looking through these things, but I, I couldn't help but notice a few of these business owners that would say, oh, I'm sorry you had a negative experience. We'll do anything we can to make it up to you. Do you want a coupon? We're sorry you had a terrible meal. Would you like to come back for a free meal? And we, you hated our food. Would you like more of it? You know, uh, there's this, there's this thing in our society where the customer is always right and the business aims to please and, and the, the people who run these businesses will do anything they can to make sure that people are happy with them. And in light of teaching this passage, it just kind of got my wheels turning. You know, what do we do? Maybe not as business people, but just as human beings. What do we do to make sure that people are happy with us? What do we do to make sure that people are not displeased with us? Where would we compromise? Where would we shape shift? Where would we give place to sin? Where would we uh, move past our, our moral foundations or, our, or our, our principles just to make sure people liked us? Does anyone here like the feeling of having someone not like you? Nobody likes that feeling. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to make sure that people are happy with us. But there's this impulse in the human heart to please people in such a way that, yeah, that shape-shifting or giving place to sin. And the point of the passage today and the point of the sermon today is, is simply this. To be approved of by God is far better than being approved of by people. We, the, the acceptance we want, the approval we want, it's far better to receive that from God himself than to bend over backwards to get it from people. Amen? Now, in order to unpack this passage, I want to do a little bit of context because there's something happening here in, in the first century Greco-Roman world, and it's this. Religious frauds. Try to imagine a world in which people would sometimes use religion to, fr- to get money from people, okay? Stretch your, ima- you're laughing, okay? Try to imagine a world in which sometimes the people who are speaking publicly about God don't actually believe what they're saying and they're just kind of using it as a way to get things from people. G.K. Beale is a biblical scholar par excellence. I love G.K. Beale's work so much. He says this, he says, religious charlatans, That's a good band name, actually, by the way. Religious charlatans existed before the media age. 
So if you think of maybe kind of the stereotypical televangelist always asking for money on the TV, he said this has been happening all throughout history, including in Paul's day. Some people pretended to be Christians, but many represented other religions and philosophies. And they would travel from town to town seeking their own benefit. The goal was generally to deceive people in order to obtain obtain selfish advantages such as money, sexual favor, or self-glory. The problem was so prevalent that the second century satirist, Lucian, I mean, who among us doesn't have a collection of Lucian just sitting on your bookshelf at home, right? You're all like, I can't wait to get home after church and read the second century satirist, Lucian. But he said, he wrote an entire work about those who, quote, went about the country practicing quackery and sorcery and trimming the fatheads, for so they style the public in the traditional patter of magicians. Quackery practicing quackery. What are you doing? I've just been practicing my quackery. Uh, So the idea is, Paul and his traveling companions, they're going around from town to town telling people, hey, there was a man from, from Israel named Yeshua from Nazareth. He was a worker of miracles. He taught truths about God. The authorities arrested him, convicted him, and crucified him. They put him to death, but on the third day, he rose from the dead, and now he's calling people from all nations to swear their allegiance to him, to to follow this Jesus from Nazareth as the king over all things. Will you sign on? But when they would get to these different towns, people were already skeptical because they were used to philosophers and religious people coming in and teaching these things. And so kind of the point of this passage here is for Paul and Silas and Timothy to say, hey, we're not frauds like what you might be skeptical of. Go back to the passage and think of that as we go through this. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. What he's referencing there is a scene in Acts chapter 16 where they go to the city of Philippi. And some of you might be familiar with this story. They're speaking, they're teaching, they're actually arrested, they're beaten, they're thrown into prison, they're jailed. And in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas authors of this. They're singing to God and praying to God. And and what happens? There's this violent earthquake. shakes everything and the prison like falls apart and the chains miraculously fall off of them. And the guy who's in charge of the jail is like, oh no, I'm going to get in trouble and they're going to put me to death. And they're like, no, 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 we're still here. And they lead him to become a follower of Jesus. It's this awesome sort of thing, but opposition arises. Well, what what they're saying is if we were frauds, we wouldn't keep going on because this stuff is really hard. We keep getting arrested. We keep getting beaten up. We keep getting people, like, we have to run for our lives. They actually ran to Thessalonica, and the, the word about what had happened had already preceded them. So they're saying, look, we're, we're not some frauds. We were actually emboldened by God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. Verse 3, for our exhortation or our preaching didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive, we're not, we're not like these charlatans. We're not trying to trick you. We really believe this stuff. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. And they go on, like, here's the, here's the things. We never use flattering speech, as you know. We didn't have greedy motives. God's our witness. 
We didn't seek glory from people, either you or from others. We don't need your pats on the back. Are you, oh, you're so amazing, Paul. You're so great, Timothy. And although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, um, specifically financial here is what's mentioned. Paul, in other letters, Paul writes that those who labor in preaching and teaching uh, have a right to be compensated for their work in the gospel. Paul says you don't muzzle the ox while treading out the grain. There's no, Paul has no problem with people being financially compensated by the, the gathered assembly of Christians. But what he says is, I didn't want to have any accusation that I'm one of these frauds that's just in it for the money. So you can actually read in the, in the book of Acts, Paul Paul does what? He's a leather worker. He, he makes tents. He has a job to pay for his own expenses so that he doesn't have to take any money from any of these little fledgling church communities. So he says, we, we could have been a burden. I could have asked you for money. But instead, we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. Some of your translations might say we were like infants among you. And there's an interesting kind of textual thing where some of these ancient manuscripts have the Greek word for infants, and some of the ancient manuscripts have the Greek word for gentle. In the Greek, they're one letter different, so scholars like, maybe there was like a copy-paste error or something like that. Either way, the point is, they didn't come in all heavy-handed. They were very gentle, like a baby. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, for you had become dear to us. You remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not again burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. So you're witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to live worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, that's, there's a lot in that passage, and so I, I spent some time this week trying to distill it down. What, what Paul and Silas are saying here is there's some markers you can look for for these bad leaders. Here, here's, what a, here's what a huckster looks like. Here's what a fraud looks like. Here's what a charlatan looks like. I, I like the word huckster and charlatan. It's very fun to get to say those over and over again. He says that a, 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 a fraud, their message is going to be impotent. Like there's no power. It doesn't do anything. It's all just fluff and noise. It's erroneous, right? You can prove it to be wrong. It's, there's an impurity there. There's some sort of desire there that is kind of tainting it all. And many scholars see in there kind of that, that conversation about like maybe sexual impurity, using the, the public platform for sensual pleasures. It's deceptive. You know what you're selling is terrible. Like flattery. You're boosting the egos of the hearers. By the way, I meant to say this earlier. You look beautiful today, Sound City. Gorgeous. There's greedy motives, again, almost certainly financial. They're seeking glory to be like puffed up and lifted up and built up. I want to I be important. They're a burden. Again, there's that financial benefit. And the bad leaders are not gentle. Eventually, a fraud will be proven to be rough. Now, uh, as I was putting this list together and kind of reflecting on this passage, I have to say that a thought occurred to me. This reminds me of the one time that I sat through a timeshare presentation. If there are any people here who work in selling timeshares, my deepest and profound apologies. But this is like the worst bad type of sales. I know some of you work in sales and some of you work in marketing, but this is gross. We went to this timeshare presentation. I can't remember where we were on vacation. And Aaron Lynn and I were out and about and they said, hey, if you come to this timeshare presentation, it's 45 minutes, we'll give you a $250. We'll give you $250. And Aaron Lynn's like, well, we could use that. I think we were young, poor, 
broke. We're like, ah, let's sit through a timeshare presentation. We'll get some cash. And my wife looked at me, and she knew, she knew what was in the heart of man. And she looked at me, and she goes, no matter what they say, we are not buying a timeshare. I was like, yes, I agree. She's like, you can't, you can't let them think we're buying a timeshare. I'm like, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you, honey. I, team Aaron Lynn all the way. We're not going to give in to some flattery, deceptive, you know, there's some, like, and we get there, and she looked me in the eyes before we got to, remember, we're not, we're not doing it. And then we got in there, and the presentation started, and within about five minutes, I'm like, where do I sign? This is incredible. Like, I'm losing money not owning this timeshare. Strangle you. So, she, so I'm happy to say that marked safe from buying a timeshare. I didn't do it, okay? Also, really quick side note, the lady who, <laughs> the lady who did the timeshare presentation, her name was Reagan Bush. And she goes, before you think that like, I'm like a really hardcore Republican, she goes, Bush is my married last name, and my parents named me Reagan, not after the president, but after the girl from the movie The Exorcist. So anyways, <laughs> the point being, there are people who are trying to take advantage of you. And Paul and Silas want you to know, and Timothy want you to know what to look for. Now they said, that's not us. That's not, that's not how our lives live. Look at what our lives are like. The good markers, they said we were bold even when there was hardship. Charlatans would have folded. A fraud would have just run away when things get hard. They said we were working to please God, not please people. We were gentle with you. The, the phonies eventually get harsh. They said we, we, we had this kind of motherly, nursing sort of nurture in verse 7. And actually, if you look at the end of the list, there's the instruction of a father. One commentary I read said that that's very common in Greco-Roman society to see that the role of the mother is that kind of love and nurture, and the, the role of the father would be that instructive teaching and training sort of a thing. And so while we know that, yes, men and women can both teach and men and women can both be nurturing, there's something in there of kind of their, they, they intentionally drew upon that cultural understanding to say, we, we're like all of it to you. We're like mothers and fathers in this church community. They said that we, sh- we shared our lives. We didn't just share the message with you, we shared our lives with you. We, we, we shared our very lives. Hucksters don't do life together, if I can use that phrase that I don't like. Uh, said we worked to provide. We didn't just leech money. We, we had devotion, right? If, if Paul was working, making tents and planting a church, like how, how much dedication and devotion did he have to have? So we lived with righteousness. We lived with blamelessness. That word blameless is the same word that's used in 1 Timothy 3 when it talks about the character qualifications for overseers, for pastors in the church. And I was thinking about that word this week because last Sunday, we had the privilege of installing Jeremiah and Myung as pastors in our church. And that word blameless doesn't mean that these men are perfect, certainly not. Every one of the elders of this church are sinful people in need of God's grace. But there is like this idea of, hey, there's no room for like some big accusation to come in and say, hey, I know what you, you know, I know what you did last summer or something like that. You come in and you say, this is someone whose life you could you could follow. You could follow their example. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are saying, this is the life that we live. So again, remember the point here. All you people in Thessalonica are suspicious of religious hucksters. Here's this big list of markers of what to look for for those people. Here's this big list of markers of what you've seen in us. But the core of this is we're genuinely different and why? Why can these men say with such confidence that Our lives are different. The core difference is found in verse 4. 
Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. That is the core difference. Who are we trying to please? Who are we trying to make happy? You or him? My wife and I have been watching a show recently called The Reluctant Traveler. If you haven't seen it, it's on Apple TV. Uh, pretty well-known actor, Eugene Levy. And Eugene Levy said, he said, the intro of the show, he goes, I'm 75 years old and I hate traveling. I don't like new things. I don't like airports. I don't like planes. I don't like being too hot. I don't like being too cold. And so they take him to like all these far-flung places around the world and just stretch him and make him go on like jungle hikes in Costa Rica. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty good. I like it. But it's cheating because everywhere they take him in the world, they put him up in the nicest, like we're talking like world-class, otherworldly hotels, like built into the side of a you know, volcano or like you walk out on the deck and you've got like an infinity pool. It's just, it's just incredibly like opulent. And one of the episodes, I can't remember where they were. They were, I think it was Maldives in, uh, in the Indian Ocean. And they said, oh yeah, we had some people that wanted this special butter. So we had it flown in from France. Our motto is anything, anywhere, anytime. And it just struck me. It's like, holy cow. What an opulent, decadent, people-pleasy sort of way to go. Now, none of us are living in that kind of opulence. If you are, I would like to talk to you afterwards about becoming my new best friend. But, (laughs) but, but, hear me out. We live in a culture, we live in a society that is so thoroughly soaked in The customer is always right. We aim to please. Have it your way from the king of burgers, right? Friends, we, it's the air we breathe. It's the water that we swim in. Everything around us is built on this idea of the customer is always right. And if you're not happy, then the people who are providing the goods and services have to radically change everything and, and fix everything. We live in a representative democracy in a republic. If we don't like the job our politicians are doing, doggone it, we're going to vote them out in the next election. Friends, hear me on this. That type of consumer mentality has no place in the family of God. Has no place in the people of God. If we were, as a church, trying to please you, we would be failing the gospel message that Jesus said to be proclaimed. And I will confess to you, as someone who struggles with people pleasing in fear of man, that it could be very easy, very easy, to take the, the, the church and turn it into a Yelp comment section. How dare we take the body of Christ, the family of God, and turn it into an American-style consumer machine where the loudest voices get what they want, where, where the pastors and the leaders uh, shapeshift and, and flip-flop in order to please the whims and the desires of the people. Friends, I, I, to, to whatever extent I possibly can, Sound City Bible Church exists to please God, not you. Amen? And, and, and 
you have to be very careful as participants in the church to not adopt the same mindset as you would when you're going to a restaurant. This church is not here to serve it to you, to have it your way. And particularly for those of you who don't contribute to the life of the church, you need to ask God to break your heart and repent. I love you. We're here to please God, not you. That type of thing, though, seeps into our interpersonal relationships. It's not just the church service. Oh, the music didn't really do it very good. Oh, I didn't really like the sermon today. Oh, I wish they would do this. I wish they would do that. Not even that. It actually sneaks in. It's more insidious than that. It sneaks into our one-on-one relationships. Oh, I wish this person would, would do this for me. I wish it. And so, so we start to act and behave in such a way as to get the desired reaction that we want from them. It's called being a people pleaser. Instead of loving and serving and giving with a heart of gratitude, response to what God has done, just sincere love, we're actually loving and serving and giving to get something back. A people pleaser gives and serves, but with impure and greedy motives. God help us. Friends, I'm looking in the mirror as much as, as pointing any fingers here because of the sinfulness of our own hearts, but also because of the culture that we live in, it is so easy to get into this mentality of people-pleasing so that we can get what we want. Paul and Silas are saying there is a way to live, to break out of that feedback loop, trying to make people happy, trying to get their approval, trying to make people happy, being a people-pleaser, receiving their love and affection. These guys are saying there's a different way to live. There's a way to break out of that trap. And it's right back there in verse four again. First Thessalonians 2, verse four. Instead, just as we have been approved by God, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So now we're able to just speak not to please people, but God. That deeper truth, that deeper motivation is that every human being is searching for approval, is searching to know that you're wanted, you're liked, you're okay, and we'll, we'll grasp at anything to get it. But the reality of the gospel is that we in Christ Jesus are already approved by God. The Bible tells us a different story. In fact, the Bible starts out in Genesis chapter 1, with a status as human beings that God delights in us. Our approval is found all the way back in creation. Think about Genesis 1. God is creating. He is speaking things into existence. Let there be light. Let there be stars. Let there be plants. Let there be birds. Let there be fish. And then he said, let there be animals. Things like monkeys and giraffes and platypuses, platypi, whatever the plural is, right? Platypods? I don't remember what it is, right? If you ever want to know if God has a a childlike sense of delight and joy, you just look at the platypus and you say, yes, God is into fun because that thing is ridiculous, okay? And on the final day of creation, God formed the dust of the earth into the man and he breathed the breath of life. And Genesis 1 says, male and female, he created them in his image and likeness. And all throughout Genesis 1, God says, this is good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And then he made mankind. And what does God see? That it's 
real good, very good. Right from the beginning, God is delighted in his creation, amen? But sin enters the picture. Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve believe the lie. They they take matters into their own hands and they unleash sin and that unleashes violence and hatred and racism and every form of division and warfare into the world. And in Genesis chapter six, before the flood, the Bible tells us that God disapproves of sin so much that he actually regretted making man. It is not that God disapproves of his creation, but he disapproves of the sin that is ravaging his creation. And that's where a lot of us live. A lot of us live in the shame and in the guilt of, man, I know that I'm broken. I know that I, how many of you are aware? You have flaws. You have issues. You have problems. You don't, the good you want to do, you don't do. The evil you don't want to do, you end up doing. And we live in that place of shame where we say, man, there's something wrong with me. There's something broken with me. But God put in place a plan from eternity past to remedy that problem. And when the time came, God the Son stepped out of eternity, took on human flesh in the person of Jesus from Nazareth. And do you know what? Jesus never sinned. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life, but Jesus never specifically sought praise or glory from man. He only did that which was pleasing, what? To the Father. And so because of that, Jesus can go to the cross in our place, a punishment that we deserve. He took it upon himself, died on the cross in our place for our sins. And on the third day, guess what, friends? He didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead, the ultimate seal of approval from his heavenly father. And now the offer is on the table to receive not only the forgiveness of sins that we need, but the approval that we so desperately want, it's now found in Christ Jesus. If we will repent of our sins, if we will trust in his life, his death, his resurrection, we have approval in Christ. The apostle Paul writes that we are justified by faith and we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. You can know that you're approved of by God. The the theological or doctrinal term for this is union with Christ. When you repent of your sins, you trust in Jesus, you are united with Christ. And now what is true of him is also true of you. So in in Matthew 3, when we read in our, Jamie read our assurance earlier, it says that the father spoke a word over the son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, guess what? If you are in Christ, that's now true of you as well. Beloved son, beloved daughter, with whom God is well pleased, if you are united to Christ. This is awesome. Oh my goodness. You don't have to chase after God's approval. You can have it as a gift because of what Jesus did for you. And that gift frees you from the trap of chasing after man's approval. You don't have to chase after God's approval. You don't have to chase after my approval. You can know that you are approved because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. Man, oh man, oh man. And the more you're set free from that trap, 
while the more you're going to live to please God, not others. But it leads to one last and final question that I want to explore here in the last few minutes, which is this. How can I know? How can I know, like really know, that I'm approved by God? There's a difference between an objective truth and kind of a subjective experience of that truth. Sometimes you can know things, but still not act in accordance with those things, not feel that thing, right? For example, I know that near my neighborhood is a school zone with one of those cameras that will send me an expensive speeding ticket, and yet in my behavior, I still sometimes drive too fast through that school zone. Like, I know the reality, but I don't always act in accordance with it. Now, I've lived in this neighborhood for 10 years now, and I'm getting better, okay? I'm getting better. I know that wearing this Mariner's shirt today means absolutely nothing in their play against the Houston Astros this afternoon. What's the line from the office? I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious, right? I know that this does nothing, but I still like, well, I'm going to wear the Mariner's shirt because I want to see if they'll win, right? Okay, some of you might say, well, I I know that God approves of me, but in your day-to-day life, in your subjective experience, in your actions and your behaviors, it still maybe feels like God doesn't approve of you. Um, In my time as a pastor, just in my time as a Christian, talking with other believers, I've had so many conversations with people over the years where they say something to the effect of, well, I know up here this truth that God accepts me because of what Christ has done man, I just don't feel like it. I feel like there's a distance from God. I feel like there's a scowling, disapproving face. In our subjective experience, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you sometimes struggle with like, living in that feeling and in that experience of, of knowing that you're approved by God? So in our culture, the most, common, uh, the most common way to address that is through the idea of self-esteem. Well, you feel bad, you don't feel accepted, you don't feel approved. Rather than being a people pleaser, why don't you just esteem yourself? Look yourself in the mirror every single day and say, you is smart, you is beautiful, right? What's the one from Saturday Night Live? <laughs> I'm good, I'm smart, and doggone it, people like me. I think I butchered the quote, but it's hilarious, trust me. If I'd gotten it right, you'd laugh really hard. Look yourself in the mirror and just esteem yourself. Build yourself up. The problem is, is that's, a, that's an empty fountain. Biblical counselor and author Ed Welch says, there is no reason why we should feel great about ourselves. We are truly deficient. <laughs> Encouraging quote of the year. The meager props of the self-esteem teaching will eventually collapse as people realize that their problem is much deeper. You can't build yourself up with self-esteem. You need to be built up in the acceptance we have in our God through the gospel message. Hear me say this. You are approved of by God because of what Jesus did. His perfect record is gifted to you when you reach out through faith and receive it. You don't have to worry. 
You don't have to stay up at night. You don't have to strive for God's acceptance. You already have it in Christ Jesus. You've been set free from the trap of people-pleasing. You've been set free from the trap of trying to earn God's favor. You have it. So I want to offer two practices, some habits that you're going to need to do. You're going to need to commit yourself to this in order to live in it, okay? Practice number one, uh, it's actually cheating. It's kind of two for one, but it is the combination of memorization and meditation, okay? For those of you that struggle with that kind of I'm not good enough, um, my experience has shown me that, that no one has more influence over myself than myself, um, if you're anything like me, you talk to yourself, you've got messages going on in your head, whether that's your own kind of internal negative self-critic, maybe you had a very disapproving parent and you still hear their voice in your head, maybe you had a disapproving for, you know, f- former romantic partner, you still hear their voice in your head, maybe you hear the words of the enemy himself in your head. Well, guess what? God has given us his word to shape us, to guide us. So when I say memorization, um, I remember a few years ago, I heard uh, a pastor and author, John Piper, say, you need to have some fighter verses. You need to find those specific verses that speak to the specific struggle that you're having, and you need to intentionally commit them to memory. You need to, when you commit them to memory, when you diligently take the time to actually memorize the truths of God's word, then guess what? They're really accessible to you. You got to put some, some smooth stones in your slingshot pouch. You got to sharpen your battle axe. Because apparently you're Gimli the dwarf in this illustration. I don't know. You got you to be ready. You got to be ready. The voice of the enemy is coming. The voice of the inner critic is coming. What will you reach for if not the truths of God's word? Behold, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Memorize that. Find some other ones. Memorize this verse. Instead, as those who have been, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. You need to memorize it, and then you need to, one step further, you need to meditate on it. Sometimes people get a little um, nervous when they hear Christians talk about meditation because of its associations with Eastern religion. Well, let me tell you, Eastern religions or non-Christian religions, when they talk about meditation, they often talk about emptying of the mind. As Christians, when we meditate, we are filling our mind with the truths of God. And so you get in a quiet place, You get a chair in the backyard or a quiet room of the house. You go off in nature, leave your phone behind, throw your phone in the lake and just chew on those words. Lord, I am your beloved son with whom you are well pleased. And then your mind's gonna wander and you're gonna start thinking about things. I got these bills to pay or I got these grocery shopping. No, 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 no. I am a beloved son. I wonder if the Seahawks did the right thing with their draft picks recently. No, 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 I am... Beloved, you got to meditate. You got to. You have to practice this, friends. This is war for your heart and your mind. The enemy would love to have you living in a in a in an identity that belongs to the previous you. If you're in Christ, you are approved of by God. This is way better than self esteem, self talk. This is soaking yourself in the truth of God's word, and God's word does not return empty. Number two. Community with conversation. You hear us talk a lot about community groups at this church and small groups in different ways that we want to connect our lives together. The point of a community group is not because you're bored and you need something to do on a Tuesday night. 
The point is it's an intentional framework to sit and look each other in the eye and talk about these things and remind one another of who we are in Christ Jesus. I've had people in my life, and by the way, you don't need a community group to do that. You can just go on a walk with somebody or have a meal with somebody or get together with somebody. But I've had people in my life who have walked with Jesus for years and years and years and years, and they'll say things like, oh, I just am such a failure, I'm such a fraud. And it's like, sometimes in that conversation, can I just say back to you what you just said? Can I just repeat back to you what you just said? Tell me how that sits. Tell me, does that sound like a beloved son or a beloved daughter who already has approval because of Christ Jesus? We need each other in this battle. Friends, I want to challenge you to be the kind of people in the lives of other believers who will remind them you already have God's approval. You don't need to feel like a failure before God and you most certainly do not need to play the people-pleasing game. You have been approved by God because of Christ's perfect record. You are now free to worship him, to serve others out of love. How good is that news, friends? And as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, to eat and drink the broken body and the shed blood of Christ Jesus, let's ask him to remind us of the approval we have. I'll invite Pastor Jason to come lead us Will you pray with me? Lord, we bring our hearts before you now, our fearful and weary hearts. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we hear the voice of the enemy or our own accusations saying that we're not good enough. And Lord, we know on our own, we're not. But because of Christ's gift to us, we don't ever have to doubt your approval of us. So Lord, would you help us now as we eat and as we drink, as we sing, as we pray, to more deeply know that we're approved in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.